Romans chapter 12. And I do promise we're to finish chapter 12 today. I think this is about the seventh message we've had from Romans chapter 12. And um, we will get through it. And uh, we're going to pick up at, um, at verse 17. We'll pick up verse 14, but we'll be really looking at verse 17 to end of 21. So Romans chapter 12 and verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, or do not be overcome by evil, but every, overcome evil uh, with good. Last week we saw that the believer who has surrendered to the Lord as a living sacrifice, that's what we have in 12, 1 and 2. And by the way, this whole chapter and some, to some extent the rest of the book hangs on verses 1 and 2 and particularly verse 9 where it talks about sincere love. But we had a look last week and we saw that those who are surrendered to Jesus Christ as a living sacrifice, they will not only love the church family, love one another, but they will also sincerely um, love believers and unbelievers whom the Lord providentially brings across our paths. That's what we had a look at last week in 14 to 16. But in this last section, what we do see here is Paul extends even further the circle of our sincere love for that love to do its work. He goes wider in that he specifically points not only to those who can be a, a real pain in our lives, I was going to say a pain in the butt, but that may not be very appropriate, but you know what I mean, not only to those who can be a real pain, but also to our unredeemed enemies, those who may for whatever reason personally hate us, This extended circle is captured in the text by a phrase that Paul uses twice in this section when he says all men. You see that? In verses 17 and 18, all men. In other words, here is how we are to respond to all men no matter what circumstance or situation but especially those who are hostile, those who are angry, those who hound us and those who infuriate us. Now these people could be your family members, sad to say. They could even be a spouse, again sad to say. They could be someone at work, your place of work. 
It could be an abusive and offensive acquaintance or a neighbour or maybe even your boss at work. These people, to some degree or other, exist in our lives. And no doubt, like me, you are pulling a name or two right now as you think of people in your life who have rattled your cage and have succeeded in driving you to anger maybe and frustration and even desperation at times. Those kind of people are out there, right? So what do we do with these kind of people that the Lord providentially sends across our paths? How on earth are we as surrendered to Christ Christians to respond to such people? Well, Paul continues with his specific instructions here in how to handle such cases. The first one is no retaliation. What have we got here? There we are. No retaliation. We see this in the first part of verse 17. And so Paul leads straight into a principle that is easily understood, right? It's easily understood. It says, never pay back evil for anyone or to anyone. It's, it's what I call a no-brainer. It's simple, right? But why is the simple principle so hard to engage and put into practice? How true it is that our unredeemed natures too often drive us into striking back at those who have a go at us. We don't even like to be passive, many of us. We are hurt or offended, we may be slandered or criticised and we, and we too easily can fire back with both barrels, so to speak, thinking, how dare they? Or what right have they to say this to me? And so with our noses put out a joint, we want to hurt back. We tend too quickly to go on a counter charge. But what about you? We might say in a verbal argument. And so we retaliate, we return fire with whatever was fired at us maybe in the first place. But that's not the worst of it. That's not the worst of it. Because sometimes we will even fall back using the Scriptures and we will say things, wow, even the, the, the law of God validates a retaliation. And we'll quote Scriptures like Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19, where it basically says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we'll say that God demanded eye for an eye for two for two, so it's okay for me to retaliate. They, they dare not get away. They don't deserve to get away with what they've done or what they've said. And so we fall back, even we dare to fall back on this teleonic justice, which is eye for eye, two for tooth law. But what we do in doing that is we fail to understand that teleonic justice, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, it only in biblical days was intended by God to pertain to civil justice, to governmental law. This law was never ever intended for a personal revenge by someone towards someone else. And also this sort of law was there, it was to protect the perpetrators, believe it or not. 
It was to protect the perpetrators, those who broke the law. Protect them from what? To protect them from being dealt out more punishment than their crime deserved. As you think about this, how true it is, folks, that when we are hurt by someone, there is this tendency to want to pay them back with a whole lot of interest added, right? Governments are given this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law principle to govern its people. Our civil government, as we see in the next chapter, and we'll be looking at that in a few weeks' time when we get back, um, uh, the civil government is a minister of God, it tells us there in the next chapter, verse 4 of chapter 13. It's a minister of God, and it's called by God to govern a nation by this law. So even our government of Australia is accountable to God, how it governs its people, and this will be one of the principles by which it will be held accountable to. And they do this, God makes them ministers of God to carry out this law as a principle, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, in order to be fair and just, and for justice to be served. And there's a footnote, there's a footnote here. If any society fails in having a government that does not bear the sword, because that's what we read in the next chapter, if it does not bear the sword and be an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil, verse 4, you know what? That country, that government will suffer divine consequences. See, by failing to serve justice through, through weak laws and, and loopholes which allow and we can quote many of them ourselves, murderers and rapists and pedophiles and the like, for, for any kind of a law that allows these men, these people to run free through some loophole or some whatever, any society that allows that, you know what it's doing? It's lining itself up for divine judgment because they have failed to employ something. You know what they have failed to employ? They have failed to employ the principle of God's law here, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. In other words, fair justice for the crime committed. So you can do some telling up, folks, in the laws of our own land and see what happens. But to avenge wrongdoing is a civil matter. We need to understand that. To avenge wrongdoing is a civil matter. Uh, but as far as, as private revenge, there's no place for that, absolutely no place at all. So he says here, Paul says here, pay back no man evil for evil. Now that's our place, folks. That's our place. We do not retaliate. God's design for society never was to be run by some vigilante law. Never. So how do we handle the evil that is done to us? How do we handle it? We're told here what not to do, Never pay back evil for evil, but is there a positive spin on this negative command? Paul on another occasion answers the question here very clearly, I believe, when he wrote to the Thessalonian believers. He said this in chapter 5, verse 15. See that, you pay, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The Apostle Peter, he echoes the same words in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, where he says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, 
kind-hearted and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. May we, as God's people here at New Community Church, by God's grace become known as those who bless rather than retaliate evil for evil. For as we have undeservedly been blessed by God, and we've sung about that, we've thought about that, and meditated about that this morning, as we have been undeservedly blessed by God, we also ought to be a blessing to others. second aspect of this is respect what is right. We see this in the second part of, um, of verse 17. In times past when I've had to face someone, you know, and there are times, as you can imagine, when people are on the opposite side of my fence, <laughs> and um, so to speak. And I've always found it good and uh, for what this is worth, it may be some advice to you. I've always found it good to go over and reflect on what this person or people's beef is all about. And as I do this, I endeavour to try and think from their perspective, whether they're believers or unbelievers. Okay, I try and think from their perspective. And in doing this, I try and understand why have they reacted this way toward me um, and maybe I am at fault. Is there an apology on my part that is needed? And, and what, what all started this anyway? And so I reflect and go over all this stuff, right? In other words, rather than rushing in, and I can tend to at times, like a bull of the gates, excuse me for the agrarian terms, but that's exactly what it is, rather than rushing in like a bull of the gate and, and have my unredeemed feelings dictate the terms of engagement, rather than that happening, I respect them. Even though they might be totally feral and hostile toward me. To genuinely respect even our enemies, what this does is it gives us a built-in protection against any sinful, angry outbursts and by reflection and thinking from their perspective and trying to get to the bottom of this, what we're going to do is we're going to be more focused on doing what is right toward them. Now this doing what is right in the sight of all men as, or as the uh, ESV has it, give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all men. This is not making all about making people happy or, or, or doing what all men consider is right and honourable. No, no, no. That's pleasing men rather than God. This word right here in our text refers to, to that which is based on God's standard of rightness. That which is intrinsically good, that which is proper, that which is honest. And Peter, the Apostle Peter, again, he captures the same idea when he calls on his people in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, and he calls God's people and he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, that's who we are, right? We can, we can have empathy with that, to abstain from sinful desires which you war against your soul. And then he goes in verse 12 and he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
So this means a right response to all men is not only about thinking right, but it also carries the idea of being visibly right in our actions, in our behaviour toward them. That is, we must lead consistent and godly lives in every circumstance. You see, our right talk is to be also validated by our right walk, even toward those who oppose us. And then thirdly, we're to be peacemakers. You see this in verse 18. The next quality trait of a surrendered life to Jesus Christ is being a peacemaker. Please note that attached to this seemingly impossible command is a conditional clause. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You see that? Paul is saying that peace or being at peace with all men is, is conditional. In other words, being at peace, whether it be nation with nation, community with community, family with family, or you as an individual with another individual, it's always going to be two-sided deal. No expression, it takes two to tango, right? It works here. After all, there are some people who do not want or are not interested in being at peace. You've noticed that, right? I'm sure you have. They're not interested in peace. And so long as the Lord, who providentially brings these kind of people across our paths, as long as they have an attitude of hostility, hatred, animosity, no peace will come out of that relationship. Only the Lord can change that kind of one-sided wickedness, folks. That's why there is this conditional clause, if possible, as far as it depends on you. You see, our responsibility is to make sure that our side of the relationship is squeaky clean in order to make room for a peaceful relationship. No matter how aggro, hateful, spiteful and accusing our oppressor or oppressors may be. Peace between us and any personal opposition is to be never ever blocked by our wrong actions or any kind of vengeful spirit. Also note that this is not calling us to compromise truth and what is right in God's eyes in order to be peaceful with all men. It's not saying that, no. That's what the church at large, sad to say, has foolishly chosen to do in our day even. Hence, as we look across the broad spectrum of the church, we see so much compromising of God's truth by the church in order not to offend the enemies of the true gospel and, and, and doing that, hoping to form peaceful relationships with them or a unified relationship with them. But You know, I'm thinking of the words of James. What does he say? He says, do you not know friendship with the world is enmity with God? So we're not to compromise truth for the sake of peaceful unity. Because when that takes place, all that does is it panders to the heart of sinful man and what happens then is that God and his word and the gospel of Jesus Christ is trampled underfoot. Our peacemaking philosophy should be such that in all our actions and our reactions, we should be building bridges, absolutely. 
We should be building bridges with those who oppose us in order to bring about their what? Bring about their reconciliation because they're enemies of God and we want to see them reconciled to God. That's what we're given, isn't it? The, the ministry of reconciliation. Paul tells us that in Romans 8. So let us pursue peace, if possible, with all men. Number four, we have revenge is not an option. We see this in verse 19. Revenge is not an option. And as we look at these last two characteristics, actually, of this whole section, we cannot help but see that Paul is kind of using the, the, um, the stuck record or the, or the broken record technique. In other words, he's going over the same truth over and over again. And he does this in order to hammer home his main point. What we see here is that he denounces returning evil for evil by saying this, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Now, folks, as we think about this kind of drastic action, it may seem foreign to many of us. You think, well, wow, I've never been in a situation where uh, I have had such thoughts about revenge on someone. Um, I've never been there. Well... Believe you me, given the right context, it can easily rise up in your, unredeemed, in your unredeemed nature. Why do I say that? Because I know it. And I confess that to this very action when many years ago there was a person who invaded my family with a wicked, cruel, debilitating crime. This crime was so personally dreadful and far-reaching that in my smoldering and in my detestation of the sin and of the person who committed it, I began seriously, seriously planning to take literal revenge. I was a believer, folks. I'm not talking about me as an unchristian then. I was actually an elder in training in the church at the time. Such was the weight and severity of this event that, that all my theology went out the door and was replaced by, by a, a deep inner need to satisfy my rising vengeful spirit. So believe you me, it can happen. It can happen. Praise God, he intervened. For by his grace and, and the help of my wife and, and with the counsel and prayers of, my, of fellow saints, this verse that we have here in our text today, this very text began to consume me more and more than a vengeful spirit had that had risen in my heart. You see, I needed to get past the wrong that had been committed. Yes, was it wrong? Absolutely, it was wrong. It was sinful. It was a grievous sin against myself and my family, absolutely. But I began to understand something. I began to understand how much more this crime, this sin, this wickedness must offend and insult the heart of a holy and a righteous God. After all, no one better mess around with God's people, right? No one dare should mess around with God's people for they are precious to him. And we are precious to him, folks. Psalm 16 verse 4 says this, As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Now how is that for a commendation of how God loves us as people? So you don't mess with God's people. And so I began drinking all this in and, and, he, and understanding that God treasures us as he, as he treasures his own son because we're one in Jesus Christ and his righteous wrath against 
such sin against his people, that will be punishment, eternal punishment that perfectly fits the crime of any unforgiven person. This wrath of God and I will repay truth. It shook me to the core, folks. It shook me to the core and my vengeful spirit began to give way to a longing, to a longing for my personal enemy to get right with God for I understood for that person there were some serious eternal consequences. You see, it was not my place to do any sentencing or exacting of justice. No way. Because why? Simply this. Vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. If it was left to me and if I'd carried out my plans that were in the making, I would have certainly got it all wrong. Whereas God, He's perfect, perfectly just, and He deals with such matters and such people in absolute holy righteousness. And as Paul told the Colossian believers on another occasion, he says, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So don't go there, right? Don't go there. Revenge is not an option. Finally, we see that overcome evil with good. We see this in verses 20 to 21. We see here that this is something that is probably the most difficult of all to obey you see it's one thing to kill our vengeful spirit with God's truth and to keep ourselves down and in some proverbial foxhole when the when the sort of fat hits the fan of our life so to speak you know we can do that we can sort of duck for cover and say okay I'll just stay out of all this I'm not going to make waves I'll just move aside it's one thing to do that but Matter of fact, remaining passive and remaining indifferent about in such times of conflict, you know, that does not fulfill our responsibilities towards those who are against us. We had a little bit of that last week. It doesn't. But at the same time, it's quite another thing altogether to actually return good for evil. This is why I say it's possibly the hardest thing to do. Easy to duck for cover, but to return good for evil? Oh, wow, that's something. That's something that, that goes up several notches. Yet this is the obligation of the godly man, the godly person. Even right from Old Testament days, uh, as we have here, this is a quotation you see in your text here from Proverbs 25 and verse 21 to 22. It says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. In other words, folks, our obligation toward our enemies is not take revenge, not lay low and be indifferent, but help him and give him more help. You say, but why? Why would I want to? For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. This is an interesting phrase, isn't it? Not too much is known about it. But I believe... The only thing that I can look up on, I believe that the Apostle Paul, this was, a, 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 this was something that was literally done in an Egyptian culture. 
what happened if someone was shamed that they'd done something and was so guilty and had a bad conscience about something and to, to allow people to know that they were, were sorry or they were, they were shamed out over something, they would literally put a basin with hot coals on their head and go around and show people that. And that was a sign, well, this person is shamed about what they have done. And this is the same, this is Paul, Apostle Paul picks this up. And um, what this interesting phrase tells us is that even as, as in its historical setting is that your positive response, your positive response of love and kindness towards those who oppose you, towards your enemy, it will drive your enemy to shame and he will be ashamed of him or herself in the light of all the good that you have done them. That's the idea of this. And that's how to overcome evil with good, as we see in verse 21. Now we see that word overcome is an interesting word as well. It's the word Nikeo. It's where the big brand name Nike comes from. So if you've got a pair of Nike shoes on today, they've robbed it from the Scriptures. This is what it means. It means overcome. It means to be a victor. It means to be a conqueror. And so we're called, don't be a victim, but be a conqueror. By how? By overcoming evil with good. That's how we're to treat our enemies. As we wrap this up and finish chapter 12 finally, I want you just to briefly contemplate what our practice of sincere love looks like in our own lives. Does our sincere love reach out in selflessness to others in the church? and other believers. Are we diligent in pursuing our love for the brethren where we are devoted to prayer, where we rejoice with them, where we feel their pain with them, where we practice hospitality with them, where we contribute to the needs of the saints as we've been exhorted to? Does our love reach out further still to those who may cause us grief, believer or unbeliever alike? Does our love go further again and encircle, as we've had this morning, even our enemies, so that we never retaliate, but bless them with help and kindness? Big questions, right? This is what we're asked to do. May we know and practice and what it is as individuals and as a church family to, to overcome evil with good. Where? In our families? In our workplace? In our community? And even when necessary, among one another. Just to cover all the bases. I trust there's been a, a time of uh, challenge and exhortation uh, to each one of you.